Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. Alan Pleitner was a young detective senior constable in Victoria Police's homicide squad when Melbourne's waterfront war was raging. He'd grown up in the country and worked as a young constable in the inner city. Alan did 36 years in the job, retiring as a detective superintendent. This is part two of an interview I did with Alan Pleitner. It's a 20-year-old interview. I interviewed Alan when writing Billy the Texan Longley's biography in 2003. Alan was a detective senior constable in Victoria Police's homicide squad when Melbourne's waterfront war was very much underway. He was working when the painters and dockers boss, Pat Shannon, was murdered at the Druids Hotel in 1973. Alan and his partner, Detective Senior Sergeant Barry O'Brien, arrested one of three crims involved in the shooting. They arrested Alfred Connell and charged him with murder. What happened when there was a break in the case? Murray Burgess got a phone call from Gary Harding. Is that when it cracked, it, it cracked open? Well, that I can't, I can't honestly recall that because, as I said, all this time I was preparing for another trial and backwards and forwards with prosecuting and so forth. So I think probably the, almost the first I knew of was, hey, sunshine, you're finished with that trial for the day, get in the car, we're going, we'll be back here at, at six in the morning. And I think that's almost as much as I knew because, as I say, I was finishing up paperwork on Giannis, I think there's one murdered lady, there's the Mabbitt trial about the staff, and so I wasn't really chasing another job just at that stage, uh, because when you're working in a team, somebody would have the job of running with that brief when it got to trial, or inquest and then trial, or then trial, and so it happened that I had this one that I was managing and I had been managing for some weeks beforehand so we don't then change jockeys and so I continued with that and then on I was brought in I suppose almost as one of those extra troops that we were looking for uh, even though it was my team that was doing it in a normal run of things if it had just been an ordinary murder I probably wouldn't have been involved with it because I was a trial and I had others that I had to get ready because I had another trial coming up shortly after that. So I was almost a supernumerary, um, even though it was my team that basically had the job. So if you can, can you sort of gauge from that then if they were deploying police resources onto resolving it quickly, what sort of pressure was oh, there on yeah. you to get results? No, 
any murder investigation, we've worked our bum off for about the first 36 hours, and you get almost no sleep. If you didn't get it fixed up, in that time you had a real job trying to solve anything. You went over a week, you're in real bad trouble because people's memories slip a day. And so... On any we, case? Or on any case, yeah. any case. And so we would go to those blazers for 36 hours at least, and then you'd have a three or four hour break for a sleep, and then back into it again because you knew that as soon as you got past one week, when you started talking to somebody, you'd be saying, now remember last Monday week, geez, was that the day I had to go to the doctor? No, I took the dog to the pound, no, what I... And so you see it slipped. So it was normal practice that you just work, work, work. And it didn't matter whether it was day or night. And at the worst, at three or four o'clock in the morning when you get when the body gets tired as the wall slows up, that's when you take your half sort of half break and you get in, have a coffee, do a rehash between you all as to what you've got. If you didn't have your cook by then, if you had your cook it was all right because you just keep on going and, and the adrenaline would keep you rolling but if you didn't you'd be starting to scratch your head and and so you this was with any case because you know we were investigating the most serious crime you can it was an un, an unsaid dedication that you just you were the only person really who was fighting for the poor dead bugger male female small young old whatever and so you took it on as I took it on anyway as a, as a personal requirement to find out who's done it, charge who's done it, put who's done it before courts. And so you would just keep working and working and working. And so this was just a normal thing. There was, no, I don't think there was any extra pressure, certainly not of not my level. I don't believe there was because we'd had previous criminals shoot criminals. Or, sorry, we had previously more shoot criminals. That was no different to any other murder, murder, murder. Life's been taken. Um, and it was just a matter you got on with it. I don't think that the, don't think the buses had any greater urgency about solving it as any other case in the other case. You and Detective Senior Sergeant O'Brien were assigned the task of apprehending Alfred Connell. What happened? And, and do you remember where and when you arrested him? And describe what, it, what happened when you picked him up, what he looked like and all that? I think uh, we were assigned that, I think, uh, on the basis that they were already dealing with, with uh, the other fellow, Duckett Street and Dungeon, because we were happy. And I think it was only on the basis of, come on, son, let's go and find the other bloke. So we went out to, um, it out to Brunswick. It was at 12.35 a.m. Sunday, 21st of October, 1973, apparently. Oh, that's when we got him. We went out earlier than that and we checked out his address. We were told that he was, no, we were told or we suspected or we... Barry might have known that one of his watering holes was the Moreland Hotel because Duckett Street's not far from there. And so we uh, we went down there and had a look around. Um, and 
my memory has it, but Pop was closed around that time, so I think we just went back and sat off on Ducket Street, and I think we just picked him up in the street. And was he particularly worried when you picked him up, or? I think it was, uh, hey sunshine, here we are, come on, we're going to town. It was that simple, I think, uh, because, you know, uh, these blokes were particularly bright. Um, you know, they were really dumb stooges, I think. Um, but then, see, I... Did you have, do you remember the record of interview? Do you remember who actually put Connell in the phone? No. I think it was, um... No, I don't, uh... See, I don't even know... I don't think I was involved in the interviews, either. Mm -hmm. You just got to pick him up. Yeah, because, see, I was... I was that extra fellow. So the other team had been working on gathering the information while I was off at... off at pre-trial stuff and so forth. So who else would the other team have picked up, do you remember? <laughs> And you, who was in the other team? Oh, I can't recall. Barry O'Brien worked with, with Daryl Clark. Daryl was in his team. Who else was in it? The chief. That bloke Weaver or...? No, Tommy Weaver was in our team. Tommy Weaver was in our so team. So who was in your team? Oh, Brian Ritchie was our senior sergeant. Peter Thompson, I'm not sure who. Brian had been promoted at that stage or he was on leave. Um, Tomo was uh, our leader. We, um, Barry O'Brien was senior sergeant on number number three crew or number four crew. Trying to think who he had on his team. Can't take a life in the That's okay. So do you remember, at the at, after the record of interviews, when, say for example, Connell apparently put Billy in the frame, mm. did they sign a photograph of that person and then oh, date it at the back? Is I that what they do? I couldn't tell no. you. Okay. Yeah. Apparently, Alf Connell and Gary Harding waited in Park Street, which was about 100 metres up from the pub and the Druids, the Druids Hotel, mm. that night. Now, is that was that your recollection? Is that what you remember? Yeah. Honestly, I, I can't remember. No. No, because this was some of the difficulty that I had trying to remember now because I I really wasn't involved in the mm. initial investigation. If you miss that, then you mm -hmm. you lose crucial pieces. Mm -hmm. So you you didn't know what Connell said or who fingered Pat Shannon? No, yeah. the the didn't really know that. And they took me down next day to have a look in the Druid pub where he'd been shot. Who did you go there oh, with? I think probably Barry and Peter, Barry O'Brien, Peter Thompson. But that was only to familiarise me with it and also for them to get a look at the place in daylight. And I think that was about all, apart from looking around the streets, which you'd normally do. If you were the, the initial crew, then you'd get to have a look, you know, as a, as one of the junior fellas, I'd be doing some rough sketches of scenes and so forth, and I'd get to make sure I knew where everything was. Because a lot of times, of course, you, um, your boss, that was Peter Thompson and Barry O'Brien, their job is more to manage resources and so forth, and to think 
more brilliant thinkers. So we'd fill in the other pieces. We'd do all the scouts and most, and we'd be organising door to doors and this sort of thing because that was expected of us. Your job is exhibits, your job is door to door, and that's the allocation of resources that they managed. about the weapon? Do you remember when the gun was found, it was tossed in beside the Collingwood side? So they, that was another thing for them? That was them, yeah, yeah. that was them to manage. Okay. When you picked up Connell, how did he seem to you? Did he, was he particularly concerned that he was going to be charged with murder? No, I don't think so. My recollection was both, uh, was Connell was, um, that was, oh, shit. Um, was he a fairly young bloke? Do you remember? 20, was he 22 or 23, something from memory? Um, and as I say, you wouldn't you wouldn't expect him to uh, to be arguing with Einstein. Um, so that was your perception, is that these guys were the Sturges? Yeah, yeah, they were. Billy was the mastermind. They were. They were the cannon fighter. They, you know, if, uh, if you looked at any organisational structure, they'd always be the one at the bottom end. And they'd never get above the bottom end. Why do you reckon they did it then? Oh, I think uh, probably for quit. And sometimes some of them do it for notoriety. You know, and if uh, if you're invited by uh, somebody who's pretty heavy, then sometimes some of these people see that there's a bit of a bit of caught. Oh no, I did Paddy Shannon, and so you find something like that. You find idiots like um and we find those idiots do themselves up so they can carry out a job they probably wouldn't normally have the courage to do because they're small time yeah yeah they you know i've met blokes since they got out from doing time for murder they still never met them not many in Durban, you know. Only because um, many of them uh, they were the brightest of plans, so that's how they get caught too. So, so you know that they were fellows who were just going to be this normal suburban knockabouts on the on the lower end of the socio-economic scale. Oh. You, can, you can find them in any suburb. And you find them in some suburbs more than others because that's socio-economic development. So. They got significant years for doing Pat Shannon for murdering him. And uh, Gary Harding met a very unfortunate death, being stabbed to death, I think it was with a fork inside Pentridge. Did you then come to any conclusion as to how that occurred? No. Because mm. you've deaths inside Pentridge. Um, 
one. It might have views and hypotheses. Most times you don't really know what the truth is anyway. And most times you don't really know what the motive is, even if you guess at the truth. Because there's so many different factors and it's a different life. And again, often you won't be told the truth. I just happened to be looking over there and back and he's dead. So often we found that. So Would you really ask them then as regards to the police and, and the crooks? It's because there seems speaking to some of the detectives, former detectives, there's still a great deal of hostility and I'd say even hatred for people at that stage. Would you agree with that? I never had much time for hatred you. Doesn't do anybody any good. No, I think that in some instances, yeah, I think they could what about. Does it get personal? Oh, it may nowadays. Didn't then. It generally didn't then. Is it the thrill of the chase then, or like, you know, is it us versus them? Oh, I think that uh, to some police it is, and to some crooks it's. It's been smarter than the coppers. I think the majority of blokes that I worked with, it was about doing a job and doing it as well as you could. Was it like and that somebody, you? somebody had to stand up for those who suffered. Somebody had to stand up for those who couldn't stand up for themselves anymore. You know, I think in the time I was in the homicide squad, no matter who the deceased was, every person in that squad tried their damnedest to bring some justice to the deceased. You know, and I, I came there. Did that strike you as being a bit odd? You know, you're working so hard for someone that you've never known, who never will know you. No. No, look, um, That was just how you thought? Yeah, because, you know, one of the jobs we worked on was Gwendolyn Brooks. Um, the first, to my knowledge, in Australia where a television reconstruction was used to try to solve a murder. Um, way back in those days. And she was just a 17-year-old youngster doing no harm to anybody who uh, got bashed and raped and thrown into the bloody end of the beach, into the ocean. Um, Devastating parents. But who, who else was there that she could trust? To bring some safety and security back to her, her bit of township, you know, and and the same applied whether it happened to be a crook or whether it happened to be Paul Gwendolyn Brooks. Um, you know, it is the it's the one crime. It is the one crime that you can't have any remedial action for. You know, stick-ups and rapes and assaults and car thefts is remedial action, but well, there's murder because there's nobody on this earth who can bring them back to life.
So my view was you do your damnedest for that death because it's the most serious crime. And so most of those blokes in that squad at that time were very genuine, dedicated blokes who saw that their duty was to to solve that crime and bring some justice to the whole situation. And that, that wasn't just a religious thing and it wasn't just a, a personal foible, it was a professional approach to your work. That's why I say it was no unusual thing to see blokes at the end of 48 hours, that dead tired wouldn't matter, but they wouldn't stop because they had to get the break. And the boss would walk in and say, go home, there's a car ready, take it home. Because they wouldn't be physically capable of driving home. But then they'd be picked up in another five, six hours and brought back to work and they'd be rolling again. Because that was, that was what they were about. It wasn't about chasing crooks. It wasn't about, um, geez, I'm so clever. Or, you know, I'm May Gray or I'm Miss Marple or whatever. This was just about getting on and solving that crime which had been committed so that somebody can go with some peace of mind. Bringing Even. some closure. Yeah, I hate that word. It's very uh, much of a therapist word. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's not about that. It's being satisfied that you can't rectify a tragedy for anybody, but there was somebody else who never knew my kid or my husband or my wife who cared enough to catch the bugger who did it. And at least that, you know, because I worked on a number of unsolved ones. And Do you feel the same way with these sorts of murders, with the Pat Shannon murders, or was there a different feeling? No, well, I felt the same way because it was still, they were still human beings. The law was still the law. You know, in my early years I'd worked out in, in the in Collingwood, so I got to know some of the local crooks out there, and while we'd never be buddies and we wouldn't have a beer together, I also knew when they were ripping up a quid with some rattle and running around the place, and that they were selling some clothes off the dock for somebody, and so you didn't worry. They still had the same right for proper investigation as anybody else, and and despite their ways, many of them still had a good point or two. And they're just looking after the other families or a good point. So they're a different breed, weren't they? they? A lot of them came out of the Depression era too. Oh, that's true. See, Les Kane was uh, only slightly older than what I am. So he never came out of the Depression era so much. He came out of a culture. No, never did word because I've also known of some people who've come out of those sort of cultures and been law-abiding, productive citizens. So, what do you reckon creates those sorts of people, like those sorts of crims, like the the Billy the Texans, like the Pat Shannons? I think sometimes it's, um, in my view, it almost starts before they're old enough to be crooks because they. They, they grow up with this culture, as I say. And I say this without knowing the antecedents 
particularly of, of many of these people. But so I've had sufficient experience, I'd suggest, with many of those types of people to say they grew up in a household that the culture was already there. So when they're at the table, if the coppers turn up at the front door, you don't talk to the jacks. And that was the old truth. Don't talk to the jacks. You know, there's a bloke down in Collingwood that probably if I went down there again, down a beer at the Collingwood Football Club with a mate of mine, I'd see this bloke there and we used to fight him occasionally when he'd get too drunk down in the pub and he'd fight us up to up to a count of five coppers. There were four he'd have a fight. There were three he'd have a fight. There were five he'd put his hands up. There were a number of times I'd see him in a pub and I'd never ever met him until one day I was in the Collingwood Football Club with my mate having a beer and then he comes and he said, hey, Johnny, I mentioned him by nickname, he said, hey, come here. I haven't met a mate of mine, have you? This is Alan Plytner, so-and-so. He said, Jack who? I was the Jack. And so, Meggs, he wasn't a violent fellow, he'd always be he always had problems with his fingers because things would stick to him, but he was always pulling up a quid, always pulling up a quid for some poor bear. But he would just never see himself drink a beer with me because that was just outside his conceptual realms. He had grown up in a, now my mate, law-abiding, very successful, lived about one street away from this fellow in Abbotsford. They grew up there. Another fellow I know also grew up in another street the other side. Meggie was the one who went off and worked on the docks because Meggie came up in the culture of the jacks are there. You don't talk to the jacks. Even if I've known of some kids who open up and look sideways at the uniform property for smacking them out whether it's at the table or down the street, because that's the jacks. So you had that them and us inculcated very early in, the, in this cycle. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Catch.